0: Falling off cliffs or actually falling off cliffs. And then basically, everyone that I found had cursing in it. No, I didn't. So I want to tell you about a time when I almost fell off of a, a cliff. Um, so there was this uh, hill behind Leed High School in Leed, South Dakota that I had to mow. And I could have weed whipped the entire thing, but it would have taken hours. And so I thought, why not use the mower, very expensive mower that I could ride on. And one time I came down the hill and it was a little bit wet and I went to turn and the mower wasn't turning, it was sliding towards a 10 foot retaining wall. Now I'm not sure if you've ever fallen off of a 10 foot retaining wall and had a machine fall on top of you. I haven't. But I almost did, and that was equally as scary as almost actually falling off. Have you ever fallen off a cliff? I off a cliff. Well, that's different. If you jump off the cliff, you're fine. If you fall, then it's not as not as good of a thing. I fell off a cliff and jumped. I belly flopped. It was 20 feet into the water. Yep, and it hurt. Did you die? So, if you remember back a few weeks ago, I said, get ready because David is about to fall off a cliff. Tonight, he falls off the cliff. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Um, Abby had actually planned this to be after Christmas, which um, probably would have made sense. Um, But here we are before Christmas in this. It's kind of... I realized, so on Sunday... Um, give you a little preview we're talking about christmas traditions this sunday is christmas traditions movies and so i went and found the 50 the top 50 christmas movies on um, rotten tomatoes and they've done like this really interesting algorithm to come up with the top 50 there's like three or four christmas horror movies that's like antithetical Krampus is one, Gremlins is one, Home Alone is not a horror movie, come on, oh my word. Alright, let's get back on track. This is a little bit of a Christmas horror right here, Second Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late... Okay, so if you miss that, in the springtime, when the kings go out to battle, David doesn't go out to battle. Problem number one. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. Then he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is, it, is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? All right, so David is being lazy. He doesn't go off to battle. He's at home, and he's up walking around on the roof, and he looks over and sees uh, one of his neighbors close by, And she's taking a bath. So what does David do? He has an opportunity to change course, but he doesn't change course. In fact, he calls and says, who is this this person? David sends and inquires about the woman. And this person, this unnamed person, says, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So even after David looks, acknowledges, I probably shouldn't be looking at this, he sends somebody to figure out who this person is, and even the person that sends, that he sends knows, David, you're making a mistake. He says, is this not a married woman, Bathsheba, who is married to Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. Basically, he does not care. She came to him, and he lay with her. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David makes multiple decisions, bad decisions, and now Bathsheba is pregnant, the consequence of his sin. The interesting thing that we need to acknowledge here is we have a few key players, four in fact, in this story in these two chapters. We have David, we have Bathsheba, we have Uriah, and we have Nathan. Yes, there's other people, but these are the four key players. When we look at how do we deal with Bathsheba and her part in this, we have to acknowledge, okay, I may really be killing your Christmas buzz, but this is very important. We have to acknowledge what David is doing. David is the king. He is a very powerful man. He looks at a married woman and commands that she come to his house. You say, well, why did she just not go? She does not really have an option. And we have to acknowledge within this story that if you are a man of power, you do not put a woman who is underneath you in a compromising situation. David's first mistake is calling on a woman in his authority to put her in a place where she is going to have to compromise who she is and what she stands for. And likewise, ladies, do not allow yourself to believe that a man who is more powerful than you are, whether in physical stature or in position or authority, has any right to your body. Did I mention this is kind of like a Christmas nightmare? You're like, this is so awkward and it's only been 10 minutes, Eric. <laughs> you're right. But we can't just gloss over this and act like this isn't a big deal. And we've been going through this whole Me Too movement and, you're, and Bathsheba would have been a part of that. David uses his power and authority to take advantage of Bathsheba and he should not have done that. When say, of course, he was already married, she was married. Beyond that, if David wasn't married, and if Bathsheba wasn't married, it still would have been wrong. Gentlemen, if you are ever in a position of authority, you don't get to have whatever you want, especially if it's another human being. And ladies, you don't have to be subject to to another man just because they are powerful or in authority over you. I think that's pretty clear. And let us not forget that. And you're like, man, I could have gone ice skating, could have stayed home and watched a Christmas movie, and then I go to church and Eric is just all serious. Again, I didn't plan this. (laughs) But it's right here and we're not going to gloss over it and pretend that it's not there. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. David knows he has a problem on his hands, and he has an unplanned pregnancy, and he needs to try to cover it up. Joab Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David sent said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to, the house, to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in Booz, and my lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. You you catch that there? Uriah is like, our whole people are out fighting. I'm not going to go lay in my own bed and take it easy like you are, you lazy bum. That's an editorial note that's not in the text, but... Seemingly, maybe he would have liked to have said that to him. Then David says to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with his servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So, last year we were down in Florida for a part of spring break and the Leposkys were there as well and um, our friends were renting this house and in this house there was a specific chair and uh, Eli and Reese's dad Nathan goes to sit down in the chair and the chair breaks right yes you were there how did you miss it oh you're probably on your phone So upon further examination, the previous renters of the house had broken the chair and had put it back together ever so delicately so that when Nate sat in the chair or anyone sat in the chair, it would break and he'd be like, oh my goodness, what did you do? I would say like the the scene in Tommy Boy, which none of you have probably ever seen. The door falls off, Richard, what did you do? David has made a grievous error and he acknowledges that, oh my goodness, I need to cover this up. He sends for Uriah. He says, maybe if Uriah is here, then he'll go and he'll stay at his house. And when he realizes that Bathsheba is pregnant, oh, whoops, that must be your son and not my son. But we have this interesting contrast of David, who is the king, who is the man after God's own heart, and Uriah, who is this warrior guy, who both have opportunities, and David screws everything up, and Uriah says, No, I will remain faithful to what you have called me to do, even after David gets him drunk. And it's interesting as we've been looking at who David is and all of the things that he's been doing and the ways that he's been walking with God and his faith as it's, it's waxed and it's waned. That means it's gotten bigger and it's gotten smaller for you people that are into lunar phases of the moon. And yet here he seems to be in one of his lowest positions and he's contrasted with this man who doesn't even realize what is taking place, but he remains faithful to the position that he is to have and also to who David is. So, David, in the morning, he writes a letter to Joab and he sends it by hand, by the hand of Uriah. And the letter he wrote set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. So a few years ago, um, I was going to go out, actually go out to Carl's fish house and check on it for him, and I was driving out on Clark Lake, and there was a bit of a bump, as in a drift, and I started to get stuck. And I thought, well, I could reverse, I was in my car, Goldie at the time, why not just back up and give her a little bit more gas? And then I'm buried, I'm stuck, I have no shovel, I'm in like street clothes. David could have backed out of this mess that he has created at any point. He looks at Bathsheba, mistake number one, sin number one, is calling for her. He sees her, and rather than saying, whoops, I shouldn't have seen that, and turning the other way, he makes another mistake and another mistake, and another mistake, and now he's about to make another mistake by calling for Uriah to be killed. He totally sets him up. So what happens is there's fighting, Uriah goes to the front, he's killed. Verse 22, So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The man gained advantage over us and came out against us in the field. But we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. It's interesting, right? We know what her name is. Why doesn't he say when Bathsheba heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead? But we want to diminish her role and emphasize the fact that Uriah loses his life for doing nothing wrong. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. The morning, as in the weeping and mourning, not as in, okay, it's 12 o'clock noon, morning is over. David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So David, he has her husband killed after the traditional period of mourning is over. We already know that he has multiple wives. He says, well, guess what? I wanted another one. And we start to see David's sin and desire for women overtaking David his love for God. And we can't miss this, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. When there is sin, there is consequence. And in David's instance, when there's multiple sins, there are consequences. And we say, why is it that Uriah has to die when David is the one that's doing the sinning? Great question. Remember, I said there was a fourth person that plays well in this story, and that's Nathan. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a, in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. I mean, if that's not the greatest thing. He has this little, pet, this little pet sheep. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to, who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David, okay, Nathan is telling David this story. This, you know, a friend of mine once did this thing. You know the story. And he lures him in, and David's like, that guy should have to pay for what he has done. And Nathan says, aha, you are the man! And that's not a good thing. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So God uses Nathan. Now you have to realize and remember that Nathan isn't just some Randy off the street. Nathan has a relationship with David. David. And oftentimes it's the people that we have relationships with that have the ability to get close enough to us to convict us of the sin that exists in our lives. And how uncomfortable would that have had to been for Nathan to go to David to confront him on the sin that exists in his life. But it is of utmost importance for Nathan to go to David and to use this story to convict him. Notice he doesn't say right out of the gate, David, you are a pathetic loser. God is punishing you. Not the best way to approach convicting a friend of their sin. (laughs) Not the best approach. I've tried it. It doesn't work real well. So Nathan uses this story and speaks on behalf of God about the conviction that God is placing in David's life. Here's where it gets interesting. You remember that David wanted to build the house for God, and God said what? No, your son will build the house because you are a man of war, not like a Portuguese man of war, like a man of actual war. He says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. This is why David can't build the house of the Lord, because he is a man of fighting. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Let's not miss that. David's sin is David looking at God and saying, God, you are less important to me than having another wife. And that's, in essence, what sin is. It's, I have two options. I can either choose God, little eight-pound baby Jesus, or I can choose this other sin. And every time we choose the sin, we are despising God. And Nathan says that. David, you have despised God and have sinned. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you, Out of your own house. You think your family's crazy? You ain't seen nothing yet. It's about to get real crazy with David's house. And God is punishing David for what he has done, and he's using his own house to punish him. But that's next year. See what I did there? Two weeks off, 2019, next year. I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord, obviously. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because... By this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who was born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. So David acknowledges the sin that's in his life. I have sinned against the Lord. And God says, yes, I will forgive your sin. I will keep you in your position. I will retain our relationship. But because of your sin, there will be consequences. Because sin has lasting consequence, even after forgiveness has been granted. And what is the consequence of David's sin? His son is going to die. You say, well, that seems a little odd. Why, once God has forgiven the sin, is there lasting consequence? Well, it's like this. When my dad decided to leave my mom and go be with another woman, he gets forgiven by God, but he's also experiencing the lasting consequence of his sin, i.e. he only gets to have 50% of Christmases with me, and 50% of weekends, and 50% of this, because he made a choice, he makes a sin, and there's lasting consequence. You say, well, why does, why does the son have to die? because sin has lasting effect. And we don't have to look very far to acknowledge that sin has lasting effect in our own lives and in the lives of people around us. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. David believes that God may still rescue his son. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that the servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. There's this grieving process, and David is trying to appeal to God on behalf of his son. And when his son dies, David knows he doesn't get angry with God because it is his own sin that has caused this thing to happen he goes to God and he goes to his house to worship because he realizes he doesn't have to just keep in this state of funk. He can go to God and God will forgive him and he can be restored. Even though David has created this grievous sin and all of these consequences and two people are dead and all of this, David knows that God forgives him and that he can go back and he can worship him And it's this amazing scene. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live, but now is dead. He is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went to her and lay with her and she bore a son and he called his name Solomon and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. God remains committed to the covenant that he has with David. And you know, this... Uh, fall and it seems like more and more recently we've been seeing like these wildfires that have been ravaging our country and the wilderness is just scorched and a few weeks ago there was this picture of this whole area that was just torched all the mobile homes were just gone and the crazy thing about a wildfire is when a wildfire just tears through an area you think how is that place ever going to be restored back to its beauty And yet the rain comes, and the restoration comes, and the seeds gain life, and the forest has an ability to come back to life because of the sustaining power of God. And David commits this grievous sin, and he does all of these things, and there's death, and there's destruction, and there's, in essence, wildfire throughout David's life. And then in this very short window of time, God comes in, and he waters, and he nurtures, and he brings to life David's most important son, Solomon. Out of the ashes and the destruction and the pain of this decision that David has done with Bathsheba and Uriah and all of this comes one of the greatest kings, if not the greatest king, the last actual decent king in the nation of Israel, comes out of this because God is in the business of restoration and restoring. No matter what the sin has has occurred, God restores back to life and shows how good he is. And yeah, there's pain and there's consequence for sin, but there is also eternal restoration. And we see that in the gift of Solomon, and we just glance right over it because we're so in shock of what David has done. And we're not going to get to la- to rest for very long because did I mention David's family is crazy? It's about to get real crazy when we come back after the first of the year. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come on this night and... It is a heavy text, and sometimes it's a text that's so familiar that we just think it's like Charlie Brown's teacher, and it's just wah-wah, wah-wah, wah-wah. And it's so true today as it was then. And we think so often as we slip into sin, or as we fall off the cliff of sin, and we just keep going and going and going. And as we experience the consequences of our sin... Sometimes it's hard to see the restoration and the beauty that comes from you. Holy Spirit, may you speak into our hearts and into our lives about the times when we have been experiencing, choosing other things, or maybe we have experienced the consequences of someone else's sin. And may we seek your face and seek your Son. Seek the restoration that comes through the refreshment of your Spirit. Be with our time tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Go and stay in your small groups. Can I get an amen?